0: Welcome to the Beijing to Britain podcast with your hosts Sam Hogg and Steve Lynch as we examine the ever-changing relationship between the UK and China. Our aim is fairly simple, to learn more about the decision makers, ideas, threats and opportunities that underpin this bilateral, and to inject some complexity back into the discussion. In each episode, we'll discuss the recent happening, what's going on with some experts, and look at the parliamentary output and
1: field some questions from you. Hello, Steve. How are you doing? I am very good. Fresh off listening to Keir Starmer's speech, maybe a leader's speech. Uh, And how did you find that? Did you keep awake? (laughs) My first takeaway on the whole thing was he just kept addressing the conference like it was a person. He just kept saying, thank you, conference.
0: Conference. Thank you, conference. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, there's no need to delve any deeper than that. That is the perfect analysis of... uh potential leader's speech. I think it's probably important that we start with the major foreign policy event that's taken place uh, over the last week, both because of its sheer size and the consequences of it, and also because it overshadowed the Labour conference itself. And before we can speak about UK-China policy and what was discussed during conference there, it's important that we talk very briefly about the Hamas attack in Israel. So Steve, I wonder, we, we, we both emotionally the UK response to this. And we were saying before the podcast started how both major parties have been sort of unified in their condemnation of these atrocities and their right for Israel to defend itself and stand up for its sovereignty. I wondered if you could sort of briefly d- discuss what, you, what you've what you seen from the Chinese side on this.
1: Yeah, absolutely, Sam. And I think we're only sort of now realizing the, ex- well, the news is coming out and the extent of the horrors that have been committed in this terrorism attack so china's response has has been just fairly swift but fairly clear in round to deep concern around what's happened and the escalation of the violence between Israel and Palestine. What it's calling for both sides is around calm. It's deeply concerned about the current escalations of tension and violence but essentially the the Chinese side is just calling for a deep sense of calm in regards to, to what's happened. I think one of the interesting discussion points Sam and this is specifically around foreign policy but US foreign policy is that the US has been focused very firmly on China and has been very firmly focused on Russia to which the Middle East, I don't want to say has taken a back step, but obviously the forefront of prioritisation China and Russia is right there. So there has been discussion points that the US foreign policy, because it's been focused on China and Russia, is now about to shift back to the Middle East. There obviously strong condemnation from the US side. But they don't want to get dragged into any sort of escalation, specifically with Iran, because that could be, that could be what people are saying, an opportunity for China in regards to looking at Taiwan and the escalations that China has around taking
0: Taiwan. So the conversations that I've been following that have been interesting to me are, for some commentators in the West, they portrayed China as trying to be a bit of a peacemaker so far this year and over the last 18 months or so in in the Middle East, and this is going to be a significant test. If that is their so-called sort of foreign policy strategy to cleave out a bit of influence in the Middle East as the U.S. is seen to be retreating, then this is going to be an extraordinarily difficult test for them if that's uh, what they're planning to do. That that statement that you read out earlier on or, or quoted from would suggest that they are perhaps keen to still try and play both sides, as it were, or play no side at all, when you compare that to what the UK and the US said. Let's talk about Labour Conference, Steve, given that you and I have both not been before, but we do have people on the ground.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So uh, we were both at the Conservative Party Conference and the big thing that was coming out this week is this is the conference to come to. The Labour conference was the one to come to. And I think, you know, from people that we've spoken to, there was certainly a, a different buzz, a different atmosphere taking place. We've we've, we've just pre- previously spoken about Keir Starmer's speech, um, his his conference speech. The way it's being positioned is this is a leader in power giving a speech comparatively to the Conservatives who are sort of the opposition, which is, you know, completely flipping on its head. Um, the, the one thing I really did notice, obviously we can go into the, the cliches and the rhetoric that Keir did, did mention, but it was the fact that there was absolutely no foreign policy, no foreign policy whatsoever outlined at all. Now, look, obviously, Labour's not going to specifically outline its policies on China, on you know foreign nations at this. It's still maybe got a year to go. It was very clear that they're focusing on fiscal responsibility, the economy. The economy was key. And what's also very clear is that they're, they're fighting for that centre ground I mean, we're all waiting to see the kind of Labour's true policy, but they are really fighting uh, for that that centre ground and really pushing the narrative that they are a business party. So, mm.
0: but what's your thoughts, Sam? I agree with all of that, actually. And I think, you know, Keir Starmer is often criticised for not being the most exciting man in politics, but actually, perhaps there's an argument to be made that the British voter is not looking for an exciting prime minister anymore, having had... A couple of years of turbulence and about as many prime ministers as I have fingers in my right hand is, is probably not a good way to create strategy and sort of coherence in your domestic or international policy. And, you know, to your point about that being full of cliches and his speech being full of cliches, I think that's just part and parcel of modern British political speeches, with the exception of actually Rachel Reeves' speech, which, you know, again, you and I were discussing briefly before the podcast, Rachel Reeves being the shadow chancellor of the Labour Party, which we'll come on to and we'll we'll take apart this, uh, this speech and a couple of others but first of all, I think it's important that we hear from one of our friends on the ground in Labour Conference, Andrew Ye, who is the Deputy Director of the China Strategic Risk Institute think tank. So, Andrew, thanks for joining us live from Labour Conference. If you could just sort of set the scene for us and give us an overall view of what's the atmosphere like right now?
2: Thank you, Sam. Um, yeah, it's it's great. Liverpool's a wonderful city. The atmosphere is very positive. I think that the Labour activists that are here feel that they are within touching distance of um, taking the government. So there's definitely an excited atmosphere to it, but I think also a sense of the enormity of the task, which is getting up to speed after so many years out of government.
0: Yeah, that, that seemed to be the sort of theme that was running through a lot of the speeches yesterday, those major speeches, the idea about bringing hope back and and actually, interestingly, how they spun the Conservative government as being in itself a national security risk. So I think we can talk about, obviously, what's relevant to to the podcast and to what we do, the Indo-Pacific and China. You were part of the, the group that ran the only panel, as far as I can see, on the Indo-Pacific and Labour. What, what sort of things do you guys discuss there and what sort of takeaways do you have?
2: Yeah, so we held a panel discussion on what would Labour do differently in the Indo-Pacific. And the goal of that discussion really was to try and understand not only what what would a future Labour government do uh, in facing many of the difficult challenges that China's rise poses to the UK, but also, you know, would there be any difference with what the current government is offering and trying to work out how the Labour values translate into a foreign policy um, and what would that mean um, specifically for the Indo-Pacific and China?
0: Right, and 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 was there was there anything there that you know without you don't have to name people obviously that's uh, that's one of the privileges that comes with running a panel event at the sidelines. But was there anything there that you saw which was a divergence from the current conservative government approach to the Indo Pacific that you are seeing, or that maybe fed into the Labor approach if they get into government next year?
2: Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I mean, I think there is a lot of continuity between the 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 current Labor leadership position on China and. where the current Conservative government is. And we see David Lammy's conception of the three Cs, compete, challenge, cooperate, mirrors the current government's China strategy of protect, align, and engage. I think there's a lot of consensus there. However, I think one interesting thing we've seen coming out of this conference is a potential area of divergence, which is around the link between uh, national security, economic resilience, and geopolitics. So one thing that came out from our panel was that though the Indo-Pacific may be very far away, though the next Labour government may not inherit huge amounts of public finance to be able to strengthen our role in the region much more than what we're doing already, um, the Indo-Pacific is still vitally important to our strategic interest. We have a number of our critical supply chains based in the region, and of course a huge amount of the world's trade flows through the Taiwan Strait, which is threatened increasingly by the prospect of conflict. So actually, Rachel Reeves' speech around secure economics and linking in our economic resilience to a whole of government approach, I think, could be an interesting divergence if it also has an impact on our relationship with, for example, China, with many, including myself, calling for the UK to de risk some of its critical supply chains um, in relation
0: to China. Yeah, which makes perfect sense, because obviously one of your hats, one of the many hats you wear is is with the China Strategic Risks Institute, a fairly new think tank in the Westminster and global space, actually, of late. So with your CSRI hat on and understanding this idea of Securonomics, which is a word that you and I were discussing just before the podcast started, another catchy one to add to the Westminster lingo, what, what sort of things then would an ideal labor approach, taking into account Securonomics and taking into account CSRI's view of this, what sort of things would you be looking for then going forward?
2: Sure, yeah. So the China Strategic Risk Institute is a new think tank looking to understand uh, our relationship with China uh, from the perspective of risk. Um, I think two, two key areas um, we are hoping to input into current debates on China, not just um, in relation to labour, but in relation to the UK policy space as a whole. Um, one is around the green transition, Um, Mm -hmm. We are very supportive of the cross-party support behind the green transition, uh, but we are aware that it uh, could increase our dependency on China in many of the critical green supply chains in which China is hugely dominant. It was interesting to see in David Lammy's speech him mentioning the fact that China has become the world leader in electric vehicles, for example. Mm. Um, I think this poses a particular challenge to Labour because I think it's fair to say that Labour is, is is more committed to its green and environmental goals um, than the current Conservative government is. And so how to match up, increasing our electric vehicle ownership, increasing our purchasing of lithium batteries from abroad, increasing our solar power capacity, without also becoming hugely reliant on China for critical areas of our energy infrastructure um, is a key challenge. So that's the first, the first area we are trying to inspire more discussion on is de-risking the Mm -hmm. green supply chain Um, and the second is around Taiwan Uh, and there is a growing uh, but still lacking awareness within all of the political parties discussions around the importance of Taiwan to the world economy um, and to the UK economy aside from it being a democratic partner in the region that 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 we can rely on it is also home to a huge amount of the world's semiconductor production as I'm sure listeners of this podcast will be aware and the Taiwan Strait Takes over eighty percent of the world's large container ship shipping through that through that region. So again, it's hugely important to the UK's economic security. And I don't think that any party has had a frank discussion about what the UK can genuinely do in the region to deter China um, from taking catastrophic actions against Taiwan.
0: You know, one of the things that you and I have spoken about before is that a lot of the thinking that takes place in this space operates on a if you, if, you, if you picture it as like a ladder it very rarely gets past the first rung of the ladder there's very few people asking the consequential questions as to how do you action these ideas or what's the actual reality of these things so you know for for listeners transparency on this I was really pleased to attend the CSRI's launch and one of the things I found very exciting was they were actually engaging experts dependent on which industry they're looking to understand the risk around uh, which is a should be an obvious thing to do but actually it's quite a rare thing in Westminster you often have a lot of politicos talking about issues without the expertise so you know Andrew I'm really excited to see the uh, CSRI stuff coming out of your space the space in the next couple of months actually and what should we be looking out for from CSRI what sort of things will be coming into our inboxes soon?
2: Sure so we will be um, launching a paper looking into the UK and EU's solar supply chain um, next month that will be assessing what is the risk posed by China's dominance of all stages of solar panel production? Um, Across all stages of the supply chain, its dominance is at around 80%, but in some stages it's as high as 90 or above percent. What does that mean for the risk to British household bills? What does that mean for the security of our green transition? Um, Those are the questions we'll address. Um, And also try and unpack the really difficult policy questions around, well, what can we actually do about it? How can the UK, mm. Europe, um, and other countries seek to diversify that supply chain, which has relied heavily on Chinese government subsidies, China's low energy, and huge economies of scale that so far only only China has been able to realise.
0: Okay, Andrew, look, let me finish this with one question. Uh, you're a Labour card-carrying man. If you had one wish in the whole China portfolio that a Labour government could do if it gets into power on day one between day one and day 100 what would your one policy or one strategic achievement that they would you like them to accomplish be
2: so i would want to see a much clearer strategy on taiwan uh, which i think can be summed up as deterrence diplomacy so it's not about saber rattling it's not about sending token warships to the indo pacific and and hoping that that will make a difference Uh, it's about making it unambiguously clear to the chinese government that Any level of attack against Taiwan, whether that's seizure of the outlying islands, economic blockade, or even uh, in the worst case scenario, full amphibious invasion, is completely unacceptable. That there would be economic sanctions following from both the UK and its allies. And then alongside that, taking genuine steps to, within the one China policy that the UK has, um, increase our people to people, um, official and unofficial relations with Taiwan across economy, education, culture, and thereby reducing the isolation that China hopes to impose on Taiwan has a pre-stage to it bringing it closer to reunification.
0: Thanks so much for joining us, Andrew. And uh, yeah, I'll speak to you when I see you next.
2: Thank you, Sam. A pleasure.
0: That was fantastic to hear from Andrew, who, as we touched on there, has been part of organising the only Labour fringe event looking at the Indo-Pacific and what Labour may or may not do with Taiwan and the Indo-Pacific if they get into power. Steve, We touched briefly before Andrew. uh, we spoke to Andrew and, and we heard him raise it there. Securonomics, what do we think this is? The Shadow Chancellor Rachel Reeves' speech,
1: I actually thought, I don't want to say extreme, but it was, I mean, it was pretty uncompromising, you know openly saying globalization is dead the language of economic nationalism around securenomics essentially this this is in for me i think it was very pointed language to, towards china i think she openly said like we've got to accept that the world has changed and britain has got to change with it globalization is dead Onshoring. we need jobs back in the uk and i think i've heard a previous speech from rachel reeves essentially saying the chinese are gaming the system the chinese are undercutting ignoring international trade rules and, you know, this is not, they're not going to accept this when, when they come into power. So for me, I listened to that speech and I thought, wow, this is a hardening approach on China, specifically China. And this surenomics, which seems to be a, a Biden expression, is coming to the UK.
0: Yeah, it's funny because if I was to tell you to close your eyes and imagine in the last couple of years, a politician making the case to try and get into power that China had used and abused the system or stolen potential jobs and industry from your country. Which which politicians do you think would come to mind with that rhetoric? The, the big one would be Trump. Yeah. It just goes to show in, in the couple of years since Trump has come and gone from power, how much democracies around the world and western countries have had to try and change their thinking around globalization and you know i think she made a very key point without naming china explicitly really that foreign policy and domestic security is going to be linked to industrial strategy so that's going to be quite a new and interesting time for the uk and it's going to be really specifically fascinating to see how labor if they get into power choose which industries to be subsidizing if they do subsidize them or which industries to be focusing on one of the things that's actually rolled out of the press team on labor side is this electric vehicle strategy they're proposing to sort of launch if they get into power and one of the things it discusses there is a very loose commitment to work with allies on critical minerals whatever that means specifically so yeah i completely agree what a fascinating speech and i do think by a long way the most powerful and most incisive speech from the shadow cabinet. I guess I just want to take that a little bit further, Sam, in regards to, I mean, you are the man who,
1: on a daily, weekly basis, dissects what's coming out of the UK government. So we've got the current strategy from the Conservative Party. We've heard from the the Labour Party, they're three C's, right? So they're competing with China, challenging China. Um, what's the third one? Collaborating. Collaborating with China. So what's the difference? I mean, is there a difference? It, there doesn't seem to be too much divergence between the current strategy and what David Lammy, the
0: shadow foreign secretary, actually laid out. Yeah, this is a really key question. And this is the one that, you know, Steve, businesses ask you and you and I fairly frequently. The two immediate differences that I point out, the first is that Labour's position on Xinjiang is that genocide is taking place. This is a position that is still not being given enough scrutiny, in my opinion, in the Westminster Village and in Fleet Street. Because when you have this belief if they come into power they have an obligation to act and they will be pressed on that very hard so if you're a company operating between the uk and china you may well find yourself in the crosshairs of a labor party that both believes that the country you're operating is committing genocide and the second part of this is about to commit a uk china audit again what's that look like we don't know at all um what's the risk tolerance what how are they defining risk what sectors will be part of that audit? Who will be conducting the audit? There's a million and one questions that will remain unanswered. I, I think, though... But, Sam, can I just jump in? You know, I
1: think it's a great point. I mean, I think that's pretty shocking for the majority of listeners to actually understand. Labour's official stance is genocide is being committed. I mean, can, can you just explain that a little bit more? Where that comes from? Who's, who's said that? And then also, what does that mean for companies
0: who are operating in China with any sort of ESG policy? Yeah. So this is this is the thing. This is one of these areas with a massive amount of unknowns. I can give you the history of how we got to the stage. So a couple of years ago, a Tory MP, a backbench MP, so not a minister, pushed for a debate on whether parliament believes that genocide is taking place in Xinjiang. Uh, that was Nozrat Ghani. And I was actually working for at the time. So I was quite intimately involved in terms of understanding what was going on etc cetera, etc cetera. and that this followed a series of other parliaments around the world and the american government in, in declaring genocide in Xinjiang so that that debate took place on a Thursday and the labor party backed that motion unanimously so that was in itself an acknowledgement that the labor party's view was that genocide was taking place now that had enough wiggle room because they were just backing a motion that went against the government they could basically say look that's just what we were doing we're just politicking if you want to politic around genocide that's completely up to you Fast forward uh, to about beginning of this year, maybe, actually, and David Lammy, who is the shadow foreign secretary, is being interviewed by Politico, and they asked him specifically, do you think genocide is taking place in Xinjiang? And he said, you know, yes, uh, we do. I would argue, and my belief on this is that I don't think Lammy fully comprehends what that actually means when he says those things. Not that that should stop him from saying it or not saying it. If that's his belief, that's his belief, and that's absolutely fine. But to your point about what does that mean for companies in this space, it's, it's really hard to try and find examples, recent examples, of where so many British companies are working in a country that may end up being accused of committing genocide by uh, you know, the government coming to power. The only example I can draw off the top of my head potentially would be the purge, the sort of purge of companies leaving Russia after the invasion of Ukraine because the political heat got turned up so high. That they couldn't be there anymore, but again, it's not particularly accurate comparison. As I said, it's just an area full of unknowns. But if you're not following it closely, you might find this. You know, you wake up one morning, you've been slapped in the face by a couple of negative headlines, at least, as well as some serious political anger over why your company is not explaining its ESG policy. For example, how can it have an ESG policy in a country that is committing genocide in the eyes of the government of the day?
1: Yeah, well, I I mean. I I genuinely think that for a lot of people, that's going to be pretty groundbreaking. And I think the three C's that David Lammy outlined, you know, competing with China on issues such as challenging China Mm. on genocide is going to be pretty problematic and pretty challenging moving forward. So I think over the coming months uh, before the election, you know, there needs to be flesh to the bones on that policy.
0: If that is a a Labour policy. Mm hmm. No, exactly. And look, all I'll say, the last thing I'll say about it is there's, there's still, you know, as you and I discuss, Steve, often, like there's still so much time before any potential election that Labour could try and wiggle out of it if they want to. Playing politics with declarations of genocide is really not a good place to be in at all. And if you're seem to be backing down from your belief because you're now in government, again, that's not a good place to be in at all. Liz Truss privately held that view. According to the papers, and obviously didn't have time to act on it when she got in. But it would be really difficult, I think, for Labour to back down on that view if the political scrutiny of what they said gets turned up if they arrive into Downing Street.
1: Well, something certainly for us both to look into. I guess that question that you asked Andrew at the end there—you know, what would labor strategy? What would the one thing that you'd change in a Labour strategy would be? So, Sam, if you were in charge, your your key day one. What's your new China strategy? What's the one thing that maybe you would that you would like them to see them focus on or change?
0: Yeah, it's a great question. I think fundamentally, what I would like to see them change is the level of seriousness that people put into understanding China in this country. And I don't mean that in the sense of the word about understanding the business opportunity that China presents, or you cannot create policy if you don't know what you're creating policy about, and it is really, really dangerous how little funding and how little money strategically goes into our China capabilities in this country. So I would, on day one, create the role of a China Tsar or a China commissioner that sits within the cabinet office, maybe. And they would liaise over a small department, which was built of people from across the civil service who had China experience and Mandarin proficiency, and their entire job would be trying to raise the literacy rate of China stuff across Whitehall from day one. It's an unbelievably difficult challenge. So, <laughs> thankfully, I'm not leading a party. <laughs> I would agree, and on day one,
1: I would give them the back catalogue of Beijing to Britain's podcast. <laughs> Perfect.
0: <laughs> well, that would be a good place to start, but perhaps not the best. <laughs> what about you, Steve? What would you What would you be do- doing? No, look, I I think
1: invest in China capabilities. That's fundamental to making better decisions for the UK. So, understanding and engagement is done on a basis where we are doing this for the UK to make better decisions on China and better foreign policy decisions. I think it's echoing your words and, and Andrew's for sure. Okay, so Steve, before we move off the
0: Labour conference as a whole, housing, speak to me about housing.
1: So the big announcements this this week from, from the Labour Party conference has been housing and the economy. So we wanted to do a little bit of comparisons to essentially what is a property crisis in both countries. China's housing crisis. So China, uh, it's it's been very well documented recently um, around the housing crisis that they're facing. And why is this so important? Well, it's because 25% of China's economy is tied into the the housing. The property developers, they borrow to build. So we've heard of the Evergrande and Country Garden essentially failing on their their loans. And this is just a massive issue because 25% of the country's economy is housing. So. It's, it's something certainly certainly to watch and again, if we're looking at the comparisons, I don't have the exact figures of how many houses the UK completed in the in the last sort of 10, 13 years, but the housing that had been completed in China has just once again it's just staggering. I think at the height of the house building prowess in 2018, 2019 they completed 9 to 10 million homes per year. Now the issue of that also is that 65 million of those homes are sitting abandoned. So again,
0: pros cons to the china system but steve you've had first-hand experience of china's empty homes
1: yeah absolutely so they're called ghost cities um, and so about four or five years ago i did a uh, a marathon outside of beijing and for i would say half of the marathon we just ran through a ghost city and it was so bizarre we ran through housing estates which were genuine mansions i mean sort of 10 bed mansions all identical Maybe 100 hmm. homes, all identical and all just completely abandoned. So, yeah, very, very bizarre. Different housing crisis
0: to the UK and China. That is a de- Are they decked out houses or are they just sort of just like the husks of a house? So some are completed and then
1: some are just completely abandoned. So you'll just see the husks. So, in fact, yeah. actually, I used to live next door to a husk. You know, We lived in an apartment complex near Chaoyang Park. And I'd look out the window and there was just a giant husk that was just left there. You know, um, I asked what happened. I was told not to ask questions. But, you know, it's uh, this, you know, this is some of the issues that China is facing. You know, it's an enormous crisis in China because housing is so incredibly important
0: to the Chinese population. Owning your own home is so critical, as it is in the UK. Interesting. Well, look, if we we go from talking about the economic issues facing the UK and China and, and instead move on to the economic issues facing the rest of the world, including the UK and China... Uh, currently in marrakesh the imf and the world bank are meeting so steve what's what's going on there do you think my understanding and this is because my wife is actually on the ground there it's a
1: massive conference 15 to twenty thousand delegates from all around the world we've got heads of state mainly ministers of finance um, essentially addressing the most pressing development challenges climate change debt restructuring war very big issue right now food security international trade and development and i think why is it so important i mean obviously we understand why it's not gaining the same attention as what's happening in israel and maybe domestically which what's happening with labor but why is it so important because essentially the headlines of the converse, of the the conference is the fracturing of the rules that tie the global economy together i think when i grew up you know when we were at school the fragmentation of these systems was just almost implausible. It was you you couldn't imagine that, that these things would happen. Now, look at the headlines. These are the conversations that are taking place from the International Monetary Fund, from the World Bank. So it's important. You know, is it specifically related to this podcast around UK-China relations? Maybe not directly, but, you know, the two key, one of the two key members are the UK and China.
0: So I think it's something we should definitely flag and we should certainly look into. Hmm, I, I completely agree. You know, if, if we're trying to talk about how the UK uh, is going to be putting itself forward in the global stage, which is one of the things that Labour made clear in many of their speeches, they want to try and put a bit of mojo back into the UK's footprint in the world, then understanding the IMF output and the World Bank output from this event is, is pretty critical, I think. I think you're absolutely right.
1: Absolutely. So Sam, on Sunday, did you hear the deepfake audio of Sir Keir Starmer? I did. I did, Yes. What is very clear from, from deep fakes, like what happened on Sunday, is just the, the the speed of which AI is taking over the market. And I don't think, and I'm slightly worried, that governments just won't move at the speed of what's happening in the tech sector. So I think it's so critical that we actually start talking about AI, AI technology, because that's going to be a driving factor for so many industries. And I think we need uh, better regulations and understanding about what's happening. And I think we need to bring the private sector into that because the speed of change is just phenomenal what's happening in the tech sector.
0: Yeah, I completely agree. And, you know, with the AI Safety Summit, I think you'll be pleasantly surprised, Steve, by the output in terms of what we get around preventing AIs from corrupting democracy, democratic practices, uh, uh, and, you know, your point about incorporating the private sector. I think Downing Street has been pretty front footed about that, but we'll unpack that all next week. The the one thing I would say, unfortunately, from being someone who uses Twitter, was I was disappointed to see over uh, at least two Tory MPs and a peer from the House of Lords sharing a clip from a clearly fake BBC News account. You know, we can talk about AI breaking democracy, but until we get our Represented officials literate on these issues they're just as much of an issue as well well tune in next week <laughs> for a it literacy course steve thank you so much i look forward to seeing you next week and speaking about that <laughs>